When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Frederick Ryan is a great and forgotten Irishman. He was born on October the 12th, 1873, to John Ryan, a bookkeeper of 8 Brunswick Place, Dublin, and his wife, Catherine. Fred Ryan was a friend of James Connolly's and a member of the Irish Socialist Republican Party. While still in his 20s, he gave talks to members of this party on economic subjects. He was a friend of F.J. Fay, whom he helped found the National Theatre, of which Ryan became the first secretary. He also wrote a play, The Laying of the Foundations. In 1904, with John Eglinton, he established Dana, a monthly review, and as joint editors, they have the embarrassing distinction of rejecting for publication a section of James Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. The actual rejector seems to have been Eglinton. Fred Ryan was a socialist, a rationalist, a feminist, a democratic nationalist and an internationalist. He was a humanist who believed in the intrinsic goodness of man, and he hated suffering and oppression of all kinds. Arthur Griffith, who was a political opponent, described him as honourable, generous and fearless, and always sincere. Ryan had a clear, uncluttered, logical mind. He was a fine prose writer, luminiscent, penetrating, analytic. And when writing at his best, there is an attractive flow and rhythm in his writing. Ryan was a leading thinker and writer of his time, and a fine journalist. But no Irish newspaper of the time would employ him, because of his beliefs and views. One clergyman of the period described him as the most dangerous man in Ireland. Frederick Ryan was a man born before his time. Manus O'Reardon has brought together the principal writings of Fred Ryan in two pamphlets printed in 1984. He tells how he first became acquainted with the man and his work. Well, my first acquaintance with Frederick Ryan was was, uh, very limited uh, when I was researching uh, Connolly's writings in America, I came across an article that Connolly had published in the Harp by Ryan, which was a, a lecture on the econ- economic future of Ireland. Uh, and the name Frederick Ryan was all that struck me. Uh, then that was back in uh, 1970. And at the same time, I read uh, in William O'Brien's memoirs uh, an account a brief account of Ryan's involvement in the early socialist movement. But it wasn't until about uh, ten years later uh, that I realised how strong a stand uh, Ryan had taken against uh, one of the most serious prejudices uh, exhibited by Arthur Griffith Sinn Féin, which was anti-Semitism, that the one person to challenge Griffith on his own turf in opposition to uh, the anti-Jewish outbursts in Limerick was Frederick Ryan. Uh, And I decided to uh, look into more of Ryan's writings then in in, in the uh, mid-1980s. And the more I read of of him, the more he stimulated me, uh, so that I brought out a very limited edition in pamphlet form of those writings that I found most interesting, because he was not only a socialist, he was a humanist. He preached uh, atheism. Uh, he preached internationalism. 
he, uh, as I said, attacked anti-Semitism in Ireland and then went abroad to work for uh, the Egyptian national movement. He defended uh, Ferrer, who was the uh, Catalonian secular educationist uh, who was executed by uh, a a military court-martial in Barcelona in 1909. And there was a whole range of issues where he was a true human spirit, and and that fascinated me. That that rounded man who who had an interest in so many key issues, and who was driven by an essential belief in humanity and nothing beyond humanity. But that was more than enough to to inspire and stimulate. The fear of books. There is a phrase of what may be described as the anti-library campaign, to which sufficient attention has not been drawn and which yet throws a light on the real motives which actuate the enemies of the library movement. Monsignor Hallinan, in the now notorious address to the Newcastle West Board of Guardians, a performance which has already secured this country an unenviable notice abroad, dwelt with much solemnity on the dangers to faith and morals which public libraries involved. And this note sounds through the whole propaganda. Monsignor Hallinan talked much of his conscience and his spiritual responsibilities. Having touched this high level, it was somewhat inartistic for the Monsignor to descend to the argument that the people have neither the time nor the craving for much reading, even if the free libraries were to supply them with the most wholesome kind of literature. This is a different line altogether, and even irreconcilable with the first. Since the people have not the craving for reading, nothing is to be done to stimulate it. And whilst faith and morals are supposed to be endangered by a library, they are not, apparently, endangered by the ignorance of people who have not the time or the desire to read. It was a further dissent when Monsignor Hallinan stooped to the argument that there would be leakage in the periodic carting about of books from one school to another. In Rathkeel, I have been informed that very many books are already missing. Evidently, the absence of a library does not mean an absolutely guileless people. Newcastle West, in all its bookless glory, was contrasted with vile places like Dublin and Cork, which possess free libraries, and where even Protestants are tolerated on municipal bodies without bringing about the end of the moral world. Yet spotless Newcastle could not be trusted to remove a few books from place to place without stealing them. One of his first public involvements was in 1896 when he became a member of the Celtic Literary Society um, and then later there was also the ISRP um, with Connolly. Could you tell us more about these? Well, my knowledge of his involvement there is rather sketchy. Uh, I know that uh, in his obituary, Arthur Griffith referred to his involvement in the Celtic Literary Society and how he was almost won to the nationalist cause espoused by Griffith. Uh, But Ryan felt constrained by the narrow nationalism that was being developed by Sinn Féin. and, And although he wrote for Sinn Féin publications, he reacted against that narrowness. Now, he moved towards socialism and developed a belief in socialism but also felt constrained by uh, the rather sectarian politics that and factionalism that went on within the uh, Irish Socialist Republican Party, uh, a factionalism which actually drove Connolly himself to escape from that party in, in, in 1903 and emigrate to America. Uh, Ryan had broader horizons, and I think he was 
willing to use every opportunity and whatever platform he could uh, set up in order to advance uh, both his socialism and, and broader democratic issues. And therefore, he was involved in setting up a number of different publications in order to advance uh, those views, while at the same time contributing articles to a, a whole range of, of political journals in order to get the same message across. So he was not hamstrung by whatever organisations he may have uh, been part of or even uh, established, as in the case of the, the later Socialist Party of Ireland, which he founded in 1909. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 1902, he became the first secretary of the Irish National Theatre Society, which was precursor to the Abbey Theatre. Um, could you tell us more about that? Well, this was part of his, if you like, he was very much a universal man, and this was another illustration of that. He was interested in the uh, the Irish national revival and uh, the, the cultural development of Ireland, but rea- reacted against uh, any narrowness in terms of uh, hostility to the English language or ho- hostility to uh, to foreign influences. But what he saw happening uh, in the uh, in the literary revival was an opportunity to uh, put on new plays uh, that actually addressed the themes both of 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 the emerging Ireland as well as the wider. Uh, international themes and he contributed one play himself the laying of the foundations uh, to that theatre which was highly praised uh, by Yeats at the time uh, but which unfortunately uh, the manuscript of it barring the second act has has been lost and was was indeed lost during Ryan's own lifetime so it's actually impossible to reconstruct that play. Ryan, his friend William Maloney and Thomas Kettle tried to combat orange and green bigotry. They decided to set up a National Democratic Committee, led by Michael Davitt, to introduce non-sectarian type politics and more secular thinking. Davitt, however, died before the project ever got started. But Ryan and those around him also looked to journals and periodicals to bring some degree of change to the political and intellectual life of the country. Dana was very interesting from the word go and the manifesto it it, it sort of established which was the need for free thought and free expression on all themes uh, governing the development of Irish society it was primarily a literary journal and it published poems by Pori Cullum uh, Oliver St. John Gorgety and indeed James Joyce Uh, but it was uh, it was uh, a journal which was uh, just as much geared towards the development of critical essays and in the very first issue of the journal in 1904, uh, Ryan launched an attack against what he regarded as the great sin of Irish politics uh, at that particular time, uh, rival religious bigotries reinforcing each other uh, from uh, the orange end and from the uh, extreme Catholic end. The Catholic Silence The fact remains, as Mr. Sinan's article incidentally testifies, that neither the Catholic Church nor any other church has ever encouraged free speech or free inquiry when such could be effectually crushed. The claim that Protestantism did so will not stand examination, the Reformers being as ready to persecute those who dissented from them as the Inquisition ever was at its height. All that can be said for Protestantism is that, incidentally and unconsciously, it made for the break-up of vast ecclesiastical systems, and therefore gave greater play to individual freedom. But Calvin treated Servetus just as the Inquisition treated Bruno.
The truth is, the philosophy of free inquiry and unfettered speech only began to gain ground when the old dogmas were palpably breaking up. It is a philosophy not even yet by any means accepted in Ireland. It necessitates a broadened and courageous mind. The view, for instance, that a just deity could be no more angered with honest scepticism than an earthly father could be angered with the unintentional mistakes of his children was a view that only emerged with Diderot and the encyclopedists. It was around this time, was it not, that Ryan became friendly with Francis Sheese Geffington, um, who has become a very close friend, and, and through his desire to set up the National Democratic Committee. Um, could you tell us something about this? In the 1906-1907 period in Ireland was a very interesting one, because uh, in contrast to the, uh, the dominance of uh, religious bigotry on both the nationalist and unionist side, which uh, Ryan railed against in, in 1904, you had a development on the Protestant unionist side of the independent Orange, or, or, or independent Orange Order under the leadership of Lindsay Crawford, which was extending the hand of friendship uh, to, uh, to the Catholic community, and particularly brought about by the 1907 uh, strike in, 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 uh, in Belfast. Uh, and in the south, you had uh, Michael Davitt taking up uh, the issue of uh, secular education in opposition to the Bishop, uh, Bishop O'Dwyer of Limerick at the time and insisting that we in Ireland not only needed home rule from the point of view of having an independent parliament, but we needed home rule in educational questions. That is, we needed an end to church control over education and to develop a public school system similar uh, to that in the United States. Now, these secular developments uh, on both the unionist and nationalist side inspired uh, Ryan and uh, Skeffington to approach David uh, to set up a national uh, democratic uh, committee uh, of which David would be chairperson. But uh, David, in fact, died uh, just as the uh, venture was about to take off. And uh, what Ryan and Skeffington did was to bring out this newspaper, The National Democrat, which at least made some attempt to further uh, the issues that they had hoped would be part of a broader political programme. It, it did not get beyond the role of being a journal, uh, but uh, it, 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 it made a further contribution uh, towards uh, spreading a, a secularist and internationalist view, that, uh, that which job had begun with Diana itself a few years previously. And uh, as regards uh, Ryan and Skeffington's own political relationship, what did they share in, in, in at the time? What did they have in common in politically? They shared a socialism in common, which was not uh, a Marxist socialism, but it was it was a view uh, that the socialist movement should embrace people uh, of diverse philosophical positions in order to achieve th their common objective. And both uh, Ryan and Skeffington were very much influenced by the evolutionary socialist leader uh, in France, Jean Jaurès. Uh, he was, in fact, their mentor uh, from, from the internationalist point of view. What they also shared was uh, a feeling that in order to progress uh, one's political views in Ireland, one shouldn't pretend to be something other than what one was. In other words, both Ryan and Skeffington were uh, non-believers. Uh, they were atheists, or as they themselves would have described it at the time, rationalists or humanists. 
they argued that case openly and above board and uh, felt that they could gain greater credibility by being honest about their religious positions. Uh, the position was different with Connolly, uh, who, uh, although he hadn't the slightest tincture of religious belief left at the time, as he himself put it, he usually adopted the Catholic pose in public in order to gain greater acceptability for his socialist uh, position. What Ryan and Skeffington also shared, uh, and in this they did share it with, with, with Connolly, was a total abhorrence of uh, any development of anti-Semitism on the Irish political scene. Uh, and also what they shared was an internationalism which addressed the need uh, to support uh, the uh, progressive developments in other countries and uh, in order to support uh, the movements for national independence in other countries, uh, which they counterpose very firmly to the Sinn Féin perspective, which in one of, one of its earlier issues had declared that it didn't matter a damn to Ireland whether an earthquake uh, uh, destroyed the West Indies. All we were concerned with in Ireland was Irish affairs and we shouldn't be bothered with what happens beyond our own shores. Capitalism and Nationalism a socialist view. In all countries, there are but two distinct classes. The master class owns and controls all the means of production and distribution. The land, the railways, the mills, factories, newspapers, banks and so forth. And they employ the slave class at a pittance to create wealth, giving them in return a fraction of their produce as small a fraction indeed as circumstances permit. And the slaves may starve, and do starve, as at the time of the Great Famine. If they cannot obtain from one of the master class permission to labour, that is to say, unless one of the master class can see a chance of exploiting them, in Ireland we are too prone to think we are superior to that sort of thing. We think that we have no master class, leading us on any wild goose chase, that we have no slave class, and that we could not be led into absurdities which impose on the English labourer. Yet we watch our master class grow highly indignant at the wrongs committed by England's master class. For example, William Murphy, running his tramway men twelve or thirteen hours a day, would one day off in ten, gaily tells us that he is a patriot, that he subscribes to the National Fund and even the Gaelic League. As you say, in 1909 he returned to Ireland and in the summer helped to revive the Socialist Party of Ireland and became its first secretary. How radical was this party and its aims and how, how different was it, given the time? It was rather different from uh, Connolly's first, par first party, the Irish uh, Socialist Republican Party, insofar as it wasn't... Uh, it didn't require uh, a common philosophical view as to how socialism uh, should be achieved or what should inspire it. In other words, it was open to all people who believed in socialism, ir irrespective of their philosophical position. And for that reason, probably had a, a greater impact on the society. It was Ryan himself uh, who proposed the establishment of the party and became its first national secretary. Uh, and the following year, recognising uh, Connolly's uh, importance in the earlier socialist movement, that when Connolly returned to Ireland, it was Ryan proposed that Connolly become a national organiser for that party. 
but it had a broader appeal, as I say, uh, than uh, the original party, which uh, Ryan had uh, had broken with effectively. Uh, but Ryan himself, for economic reasons, could not uh, stay involved in it. He had to emigrate uh, in order to earn a living in 1911, and therefore his his continuing involvement in Irish socialist politics came to an end following his emigration. Um, this party, the Social Party of Ireland, came under a lot of attack from, from certain Catholic newspapers at the time, did it, did it not, from different sources? Yes. Uh, Ryan was always ready to take up the cudgels against uh, priests and, and other uh, supporters of clericalism who denounced socialism or indeed uh, denounced any sort of democratic development in Irish society at the time, including such a, a commonplace democratic development as the development of public libraries. But the very same sort of people that Connolly is rightly famous for taking issue with, uh, Father Cain, the Jesuit preacher of Gardner Street, who denounced socialism and against whom Connolly wrote uh, Labour, Nationality and Religion. This was the same Father Cain that uh, Ryan was also arguing with and the Father Coleman's and, and the Father O'Neill's and all, the, all those priests who uh, basically wanted to crush any sort, of, any sort of socialism, socialist development in Ireland at its very birth, uh, Ryan was more than ready to take issue with them. The discussion of socialism, a reply to Father Fullerton. It is surely a significant sign of the times that Irish periodicals are devoting more and more attention to the subject of socialism. Dr. Hogan has only just concluded a series of articles in the Irish Ecclesiastical Record on early modern socialists. Now, in the August number of the New Ireland Review, comes Reverend Father Fullerton with an article entitled Socialism, following a series on The Social Problem. All these articles, it should be, of course, said, are anti-socialist. But even so, the fact of so much criticism being directed to the matter is remarkable. Ten years ago, even five years ago, we doubt if such a phenomenon would have occurred. Up to quite recently, socialism was looked upon in Ireland as some weird, diabolical possession, a strange and fantastic heresy that had somehow perverted a few continental miscreants. Father Fullerton confesses that it is not surprising that socialism should incite interest and enthusiasm. He describes in his own words some of the socialists' ideals. There are to be no more workhouses, no more slums, no more poverty, no more palaces. All must work for a living, but wages will be increased and working hours shortened, and from a uniform distribution of wealth all will be equally rich, equally prosperous, equally happy. Surely, even thus put, it is not an ignoble, scarcely an unchristian ideal. Every citizen, irrespective of birth or position, writes Father Fullerton, will be compelled to work for his living. He will be paid enough to keep himself decently and comfortably, and perhaps, if he is economic, to save a little, which little, however, he cannot invest or trade with in any way except in procuring from the state what the state may be willing to sell to him. One fails from all this to derive the impression of unspeakable horror which anti-socialists often desire to produce in speaking of socialist proposals. 
And uh, he also uh, wrote a lot about the nationalist movement at the time and, and criticised their vision of Ireland and their vision of Ireland post-independence. Yes, uh, Ryan uh, was against isolationism. He believed in the necessity for Irish independence, but he believed it in, in, in it in order that it provided the best means for uh, the development of a self-reliant uh, moral society in Ireland, uh, a free development of, of that society. And he went beyond that because he said that that same principle also applied east of Suez. Uh, that was why he was as much interested in the development of uh, the national movement in Persia and its struggles as the national movement in Egypt or the uh, or, 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 uh, the national movement in Ireland itself. And of course, it was for that internationalism that Arthur Griffith in particular uh, condemned him. But as far as he was concerned, you needed that, that depth of vision. It, that's what humanity was all about and uh, he felt that the, the key issue in Ireland as the key issue internationally was the social issue that you had uh, you had an economic system which kept people in, in grinding poverty and you could have no human development whether on the basis of national independence or otherwise without tackling that social question and again his, his principle was internationalist he said the cry of agony and poverty that goes up from St. Petersburg or Berlin is answered by a companion cry from those who live under the very shadow of the White House and that mattered as much to him as fight, tackling poverty within Ireland itself and fighting for a, a better social system to replace uh, capitalist exploitation in Ireland. Um, he also questioned one of the pervading definitions in the Gaelic League of uh, real Irishness, which is speaking Irish. And would you say this has resonances today uh, in the GAA or speaking Irish and then being Catholic also? From my own point of view, I don't fully agree, in, agree with Ryan on that particular issue. I think he probably overstated it in reaction against the... Uh, the uh, bigotry that was uh, shown by a lot of the Gaelic movement because I mean, he quoted Father Deneen, uh, the uh, compiler of the Irish-English uh, dictionary, as saying that if we had our own Irish language, we wouldn't be so amenable to the, the bad influences that came through English literature. And it was that parochialism he attacked. Uh, I think he perhaps went a bit overboard in 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 reducing the question of 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 the irish language to a purely uh, educational issue that he welcomed its development in irish universities uh, and he welcomed the spread of learning that was associated with it i think he went overboard uh, in his reaction against the attempt to revive the Irish language, precisely because it wasn't a question of reviving the Irish language that at least the Gaelic League was setting itself as an objective at that stage. It was the replacement of the English language by, by Irish, and it was that replacement that he reacted against. Uh, but he reacted against it in, uh, in a very dignified way. Uh, his exchange of views and his criticisms of uh, what he regarded on the other side as well-argued uh, positions developed by Patrick Pierce uh, were based on respect for people like Pierce, although he had less respect, as I say, for the bigotry shown by, by Father Deneen. Uh, but he in turn was held in respect by the Gaelic movement because the, the Gaelic revival movement as part of its entertainment uh, as part of, as one of his entertainments uh, and as one of its concerts actually uh, put on a production of uh, the his play The Laying of the Foundations while knowing 
precisely his views on on that movement so he was a man capable uh despite uh despite the intensity of 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 polemic in so many of his arguments he was a man capable of earning the respect of his political enemies in that regard on language and political ideals a reply to p h pierce as was perhaps to be expected I have been favoured with several criticisms of my article on the Gaelic League, published in the November number of this review. And though one critic wondered how I could have fallen into the obvious error of regarding the League as popular, it is yet the fact that all the comments I have seen are pro-Gaelic League. Before, however, dealing with any, let me explain a point which Mr. Gwynne and the editor of Unclive Sullish, P.H. Pierce, have both somewhat misunderstood. When I commented on the fact that the Gaelic League was praised by opposite types of politicians and publicists, and when, therefore, Cardinal Logue, for instance, supports the League because it will tend to make Ireland less amenable to modern thought, and Sir Horace Plunkett supports it because it will strengthen modern influences, either or both must be miscalculating. The League may possibly have no effect on the matter, but it cannot have both of two opposite effects. If one man tells me he thinks that the speaking of Gaelic will reconcile Ireland to the Empire by stimulating a local patriotism which does not necessarily clash with imperial interests, and another tells me he supports it because the speaking of Irish will further the desire of Irish independence, then one or other must be wrong. At the turn of the century, there was a small community of Jews in Limerick. In January 1904, Father John Cray, a redemptorist priest in the city, preached a number of anti-Semitic sermons. These led directly to physical attacks on Jews, to damage and destruction of their property, and to an organised boycott. Ryan condemned unequivocally the anti-Semitic outbreak in Limerick. Arthur Griffith, the leader of Sinn Féin, on the other hand, said that the attacks resulted from unacceptable trading practices by the Jews and were not in themselves anti-Semitic. He was the one person to tackle Griffith on his on his home turf. I think the most the best known uh, crit- critic of uh, the Limerick anti-Semitism of 1904 was Michael David. When in a sense Michael David uh, was criticising uh, Limerick anti-Semitism from the position of somebody who was uh, an Irish representative in the British House of Commons. There was, there was that degree of detachment from the, uh, the maelstorm, if you like, of, of, of domestic Irish politics. Uh, Ryan was the, the man who took issue with Griffith in Griffith's own newspaper in, in denouncing anti-Semitism, denouncing anti-Semitism as being uh, part of a tradition of uh, of Christendom in scapegoating uh, uh, Jewish people and as being uh, the worst element of continental uh, European reactionary politics, which for all Griffith's protestation about being uh, only out for a development of Irish politics, Griffith was actually importing uh, the European anti- the European anti-Semitism that was manifesting itself in uh, Hungarian nationalist politics and the nationalist politics of a number of other European countries. Uh, Ryan took on uh, Griffith, as I say, on his home patch and uh, probably earned Griffith's respect in that regard, even though Griffith uh, resolutely stuck to his own prejudices in that particular contest. 
Against the Anti-Semitism of Arthur Griffith You say that if the Jews as Jews were boycotted, it would be outrageously unjust, but that I am labouring under an obvious misapprehension. The Jew in Limerick, you say, has not been boycotted because he is a Jew, but because he is a usurer. Now I respectfully submit that it is you who are under misapprehension as to the beginning of this affair. The Limerick disturbances distinctly began in an incitement against Jews as Jews in the first speech of the courageous Father Cray, of whom you are surprised the Jewish rabbi should speak impolitely, occurred passages like this. They, the Jews, slew St. Stephen the first martyr and St. James the apostle, and ever since, as often as opportunity offered, they did not hesitate to shed Christian blood, and that even in the meanest and most cruel manner, as in the case of the holy martyr St. Simeon, who, though a mere child, they took and crucified out of hatred and derision towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Nowadays, they dare not kidnap and slay Christian children, but they will not hesitate to expose them to a longer and more cruel martyrdom by taking the clothes off their back and the bit out of their mouth. Uh, Ryan was also very modern, what he not in his attitude to foreign affairs, which you mentioned earlier. He, he craved a, a less reactionary and more understanding attitude to the, to the outside world, and a good example of this would be the case of Ferrer in, in Spain. Could you, could you expand on that? Yeah, this was another issue on which uh, Ryan uh, took issue with uh, Sinn Féin and with Griffith's uh, hostility towards any interest in, 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 in what was happening abroad, uh, any interest in what was happening abroad as distinct from um, what himself, what Griffith himself borrowed, such as anti-Semitism. But the case of Ferrer in Barcelona, uh, Ryan particularly ident identified with. Ferrer was a secular educationalist in Barcelona. Uh, and in 1909, there was... Uh, rioting in Barcelona against uh, this, a Spanish war in North Africa, rioting which took the form uh, on, on, on the part of uh, some parts of the crowd setting fire to churches. Now, Ferrer was scapegoated for that, even though he had no involvement in that particular outburst. Uh, Ferrer was not, in fact, involved in, in activist politics at all. He was involved in, in uh, the development of secular education, a non-denominational education, but he was not involved in any physical force movement. But uh, there was such a reaction from the Spanish military authorities to the church burning that had taken place that they scapegoated uh, Ferrer as a secularist, uh, put him on trial, uh, put him before a court-martial. It wasn't a proper trial because no witnesses were called and summarily executed him. Uh, Griffith and Griffith's uh, Sinn Féin newspaper uh, denounced uh, British media attention on this miscarriage of justice. Ryan took up the case of Ferrer. A fortnight or so ago, Senor Ferrer, known as a Spanish educational reformer, who had founded a number of modern schools in Catalonia, was charged before a court-martial with having participated in the Barcelona disturbances a few months ago. He denied the charge and protested his innocence. No witnesses, however, were personally examined before the court-martial. Their depositions were only read. No cross-examination or testing of the credibility of the witnesses was therefore possible. 
documents alleged to have been found in Ferrer's house, he declared he had never seen before, the presumption being that they had been concocted by police agents. We in Ireland at least know enough of these things to appreciate the allegations. Ferrer had admittedly excited the hostility of the clerical and conservative parties in Spain, since he believed, like Michael Davitt, in secular education, and had published a series of manuals and textbooks for his schools, many of them being translations of the textbooks of modern French and German scientists. On the evidence thus presented, the court-martial found Ferrer guilty, sentenced him to death, and he was shot a couple of days afterwards. For the last two years of his life, approximately uh, from 1911 to 13, he, he went to London and edited Egypt for Wilfred Scan Blunt up until his death, in actually in Blunt's house in April of 13. Could you take us through this period up to his death of appendicitis in, in April of 13? Well, for economic reasons, again, he had been forced to emigrate uh, from Ireland. He couldn't earn a living as a journalist here, quite obviously because of his views. Uh, he was such a self-sacrificing man that, in fact, his own personal welfare, uh, he thought very little of. Uh, it was he who insisted on looking after the personal welfare of Connolly when Connolly came back to Ireland in 1909 to be uh, the national organiser for the Socialist Party of Ireland because Ryan, seeing that Connolly had a family to support, realised that Connolly needed a steady wage and it was through Ryan that Connolly, in fact, uh, got employed as uh, an organiser also for the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union of which he became Acting General Secretary following Larkin's departure. But so anxious to look after the welfare of others, he he didn't look too well after his own uh, and yet couldn't continue living, living off his own family when he couldn't find employment here. So he did find employment uh, through Blunt uh, in England in editing uh, a new uh, publication called Egypt, uh, which not only uh, addressed the need to make the case for Egyptian uh, national independence known to British public opinion, but also uh, brought to uh, the attention of, of, of the British public the national movements in Persia uh, and other developments in, in, the, in the Middle East where there was a growing national movement, which was very little understood in Britain at that time and only became understood in a sort of a romantic fashion after the First World War and Lawrence of Arabia's involvement in it. Uh, Ryan worked ceaselessly uh, on behalf of that uh, particular publication uh, up to uh, the point of his death and because Blunt had been so reliant on Ryan uh, it, the work actually could not continue after Ryan's death. Ryan was the linchpin of, of that particular uh, propaganda campaign on behalf of the Egyptian national movement. Uh, again, thinking so little of himself uh, Ryan had actually spent uh, that particular Easter uh, in Paris uh, showing uh, some of his members of his family, nephews and nieces around Paris. And even though he had been complaining of ill health, refused to see a doctor. So it was only uh, after he had discharged that particular family duty and was visiting uh, Blunt uh, in Blunt's home that he called for a doctor. Uh, it was discovered he had appendicitis, but by that stage it, it was too far advanced and he died within a couple of days of the operation. So uh, his death uh, to everybody came as a great surprise precisely because he had been such an uncomplaining and self-sacrificing individual right up to that very point. Wilfred Scorn Blunt 
was, amongst other things, a diarist. This is his entry for the 9th of April, 1913. All is over. The funeral left our door at half past one. One thing is certain. It's used as continuing our paper. In any form. Without Ryan. Mr Frederick Ryan, a well-known Irish journalist, died on Monday night at Southwater, Horsham, Sussex, the residence of Mr W.S. Blunt. Mr Ryan, who was the eldest son of the late John A. Ryan, 145 Great Brunswick Street, was only 39 years of age. For many years, he was prominently identified with the advanced nationalist movement in his native city. Jim Larkin uh, penned an obituary for him, which was, in characteristic Larkin style, blunt and to the point, we've lost a man and a journalist uh, and Francis Sheehy Skeffington in particular felt a great sense of loss and it was that drive towards advancing and deepening uh, the common humanity that he saw before him both in Ireland and and elsewhere that was in fact the ethical principle underlying uh, the the activities of of Frederick Ryan's life and it is for that reason that uh, Skeffington put it very succinctly in his obituary when he said one of Fred Ryan's favourite themes was the needlessness of any religious sanction to produce the highest type of character. Of this truth he himself was an outstanding illustration. He might well be called the saint of Irish rationalism. It was uh, Ryan himself who had argued that the most spiritual work today in Ireland is material. Roses and lilies do not usually grow in stagnant pools, he said. Neither then can the roses and lilies of human character be expected to flourish in a slum where the poverty is often so great that it pulls down and degrades. We must have healthy material surroundings before we can hope to have moral and spiritual flowers. Mr Ryan was one of the clearest thinkers and ablest writers in the Irish journalistic world. An advanced feminist, socialist and nationalist, he was an active worker in every movement of the revolutionary aim or temper, religious, literary or political, in Dublin for the past 15 or 20 years. He was a man of an exceptionally gentle and lovable disposition, and in spite of the strong opinions which he held and his fearlessness in expressing them, he had no enemies. His last public appearance in Dublin was on a suffragist platform on January 7th when he delivered a lecture to the Irish Women's Franchise League, of which he was an associate, on the awakening of women in the East. He specially postponed his return to London, where he edited Egypt, for the purpose of delivering this address. In his death, Ireland has lost a high-minded patriot, countless reforming movements have lost a fountain of inspiring ideas and the conductors of the Irish citizen miss a much-loved personal friend.